Good morning, people of God. We gather this morning to worship the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, as he is introduced to us in the opening chapters of Exodus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the one whom we address as Abba, Father. And that is an incredible thing, something that we certainly take Uh, For granted, something that we certainly fail to feel the weight of is that the God we are reading about in the Bible, this glorious, mighty, conquering king, this infinite, eternal, glorious one, is Abba, Father. The picture of a small child sitting in the lap of his or her daddy. That is the picture of the Christian life. Every moment, not just when we feel that way, but every moment of the Christian life is lived in that way, whether we're experiencing that or not. That is objective truth. That is certain reality. And so wherever you are this morning in your emotions, however you feel, whatever's burdening you, know that truth, that the Lord is our Father. If you would go with me this morning in your Bibles to Exodus 40, and we are in verses 34 to 38, and if you're situated just right, you can just read it on that poster over there, Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. By the way, I want to thank Rob Corin. Uh, He has done an amazing job over the years just doing these posters for us, and recently we've been doing uh, posters for upcoming things, and, and he has done these posters in the hallway. Uh, He has just been uh, so used by God in his own skill. It makes me think about uh, those who worked on the tabernacle and all the little skills that the Lord used in order to uh, bring to fruition what we're going to look at today. All the the individuals, unnamed individuals involved. Uh, And that that is always the case in a local church. There are so many folks working behind the scenes, doing God's work, not seeking praise, but doing that work so that God can be glorified, so that God will be glorified here among his people. So Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38, and here we are. We have come, we have arrived at the final passage, the final sermon for the book of Exodus. Some uh, celebrating, some grieving, I don't know. All the way in between, uh, some of you have, have said to me that you're, you're sorry to, to leave Exodus, that you, you, you really wish that we could stay here longer. It really is a wonderful book, and it is bittersweet for me um, as we come to the end of a book. It is always bittersweet to leave one portion of Scripture, but then to look forward to what lies ahead. Uh, we think about what we've, where we've been, and we think about where we are going. And it really is a testimony, a testimony to the wonder of God's word that no matter where we turn in the Bible, we open up the Bible, we flip through the pages, no matter where we turn or where we scroll, however you are accessing God's word, we find so many glorious riches to feed our souls and to strengthen our walk with God wherever we go. And we get an indication of this in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Let me read that to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, 
And there we can understand more generally the word of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. It is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You need wisdom, you need reviving the word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold or U.S. dollars, whatever. More to be desired, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This weekend at our men's retreat, starting on Friday night and moving into Saturday, we focused on the topic of joy. And here, in Psalm 19, verse 8, we read that it is the word of God that rejoices the heart. How often we look for joy in other things, and what we find is that we find stimulation, we find uh, some level of satisfaction, but it is mere happiness. The joy that is so deep, the joy that transcends our circumstances, the joy that fills our hearts with beauty and glory, this joy comes from the Word of God. So if you thought about staying home this morning, you're like, ah, I'm just going to stay home. Maybe you're downcast. You, and you've come here. You've come to the source as, you, as you've come to God's word, sung, prayed, preached, imaged in the Lord's Supper. As you've come here this morning, you've come to the right place to this fountain of joy. God's word is the means that God uses, we are told here, to rejoice the heart. So what is our plan moving forward in uh, the preaching of the church as we leave Exodus, as we've now come to the final passage? Well, today we will cover these last five verses of Exodus. Next week, as I am away at the Shepherds Conference, Trey will finish Philippians. And we were talking about how neat that is in God's providence, you know, why he does these things and lines them up. We do not know. Uh, But it does demonstrate his providence that here in two weeks, back to back, we're going to shut two Books. We're going to close two chapters in the history of the church. Uh, Trey's walked through Philippians as he has preached uh, over the last few years, and, and then also our time in Exodus. Both of these will come to a close here this week and next week. On the following Sunday, I will begin a short series on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, and during that time, we'll also celebrate Easter and Good Friday. And then in April, as Trey recently posted in a church center message, I will leave for sabbatical, and my family and I will be in Edinburgh, Scotland, which is where we lived for four years before coming to Four Corners. So we were there. Uh, I I can still remember finding Four Corners Church on the Gospel Coalition job board uh, there in Edinburgh and uh, filling out the application uh, in uh, Starbucks on George Street. Most people, that just goes right over your head, but some of you maybe uh, know where that is. And, uh, and so we will, we will be heading back there for this period of sabbatical. 
And during that sabbatical period between the end of April and the end of July, Trey will preach a series on the book of Amos. So uh, that is, that is going to be an exciting time to go through a book. You know, he asked in the members meeting when the sabbatical was discussed, he and Walt talked about it, uh, he asked how, how many have heard a sermon on Amos. And I think there maybe were two hands. Well, that was a sermon on Amos. Uh, Trey is going to take the church through the book of Amos all the way through during this uh, three-month period. So that will be such a delight, uh, such an opportunity to build off of Exodus uh, as we think about the God of Israel working among his people in the time of the prophets. And also, uh, during that period, Daniel will, will preach a short series on Third John. So that also, I think, will be a great delight for the entire church. When I return to preaching in early August, I will begin a series on the gospel of Luke. So we'll be in that gospel for a while. So uh, back to Psalm 19. That's a, that's, a, that's a big book. So back to Psalm 19. Over the next several months, our church will be taking in the riches of these various portions of Scripture. And as Trey said uh, also in the members' meeting, this is a unique time. Uh, typically over a large, uh, well, several months, we're, we have, we're in one book, maybe two, uh, as Trey preaches, has been preaching through Philippians. But through this period of time, we're going to be covering a lot of books, seeing a lot of places in God's word, but not just in this topical way, but in this expositional way as these various portions of scripture are unpacked in their context. And then we will settle into the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as we begin an extended stay in the gospel of Luke. So that's where we're headed. I just thought it would be a good time to let everyone know, especially uh, if you leave here today scratching your head thinking, okay, we finished Exodus. What in the world are we going to do next week? So that's where we're going to be headed over the next several months. So let me just encourage you, prepare as a family. Think about where we're headed. We try to uh, align families with what we're doing here and encourage families to think about what's coming the following Sunday. So this is the next several months. So think about Uh, How you as a father and as a mother can prepare your children and how you can prepare your own hearts to take the journey through these various portions of God's word. So here we are today, Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. And the title for the sermon today is God with his people. So if you would stand with me as we read these five verses together. God with his people. This is the word of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their 
journeys. You can go ahead and be seated. This is the climax. Uh, These are the final words of this 40-chapter book, the second book of the Bible known as Exodus. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would uh, give us insight, that he would illuminate his word, that he would stir our hearts as we talked about recently with the contribution. God stirs hearts. And we need him to stir our hearts in and of ourselves. We, we can do nothing from our hearts. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And unless God illuminates the heart, unless God breathes life into a dead heart, there will be no salvation. And unless God stirs believing hearts, there will be no sanctification. And so we need the Lord to work among us this morning. So let's pray that he would do his mighty deeds in the recesses of the hearts of his people. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that you use it so powerfully in our lives. You use it in our church. And Lord, coming out of this men's retreat weekend, just seeing the way that you were using it among the brothers here uh, as we were able to spend time together in it. Lord, we're grateful for your faithfulness to us, that you keep your promises, your kindness to us, your tenderness and compassion. God, you are gracious and merciful. We praise you, Lord, that though we were, as Vic prayed, your enemies, you saved us. You you loved us, your enemies, and you made us your friends. God, we thank you that we will be your friends eternally, that we will be walking with you on streets of gold, as we read earlier, uh, on transparent glass, that it will be glorious and beautiful and uh, baffling our minds so much we don't understand, so much we cannot perceive. But Lord, we will be with you forever. We praise you for this, God, that despite our sin, you have saved us, you have been merciful to us, and you have given us hearts that love you. You have changed us, Lord, from worshiping ourselves, from denying your glory from failing, as Paul says in Romans 1, to honor you and give you thanks. You have changed us from those who have no regard for God in the world, who are without hope, who are darkness. And you have made us light in the Lord. We praise you, God, for, for this merciful salvation. And we ask God this morning that your glory would shine forth from your word And that you would use it in our hearts to sanctify us, to cause us to be grateful, to cause us to be useful in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as with last week, we can divide this passage pretty straightforwardly into two sections. And you'll see those. Those will be our two points for this morning. So God with his people is the title. Uh, And in verses 34 to 35, we get the filling And then verses 36 to 38, the following. So the filling and the following. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, the filling. And for that, we're going to look at verses 34 to 35. So go there with me. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As we come to these verses, there is a sense in which there's nothing new here. Uh, In one sense, we're not 
uh, being introduced to new elements. We're already pretty familiar at this point with the main ideas. If you just take out the main ideas and you list them on a sheet of paper, the main words, the main words that are present here, we've already seen, in fact, over and over again. The cloud, the glory, and the tabernacle. We've talked about these in different contexts. We've seen different facets of these ideas as we have gone through Exodus. So in one sense, nothing new. We were introduced to the cloud back in chapter 13, verse 21. So if you want to flip back and look at that, you don't have to. But if you want to, chapter, I'm going to read several portions of Exodus at this point as we kind of travel through. So we were introduced to this cloud back there in 1321. And it said this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. So the context here is between Passover and Red Sea, Uh, glorious events, uh, where God comes through and he strikes the firstborn of the Egyptians in in that final tenth plague, but he passes over his people. And this, of course, moves Pharaoh, God moving Pharaoh's heart to let the people go. And so the people are sent out. Pharaoh's get out of here. He wants them out. And so God through his judgment on Egypt, through his working in Pharaoh's heart, brings his people out of slavery. He brings them out of Egyptian bondage. And he is leading them with this cloud. Now, we're not told about it until we get to chapter 13, verse 21, but he's leading his people with a cloud by day and with a fire, with fire in the cloud by night so that they can travel both by day And by night. And we know when we come up to the Red Sea and the people will be so fearful. And Moses tells them not to be afraid but to see the glory of the Lord. To see God's salvation. The cloud moves and provides a separation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And then through the night God parts the sea and the people go through the sea on dry ground. God leading his people through the sea and leading his people with this cloud and this fire. And then we had, as uh, the Israelites came out of the Red Sea, they praised God and we see them moving through the wilderness. We come to Mount Sinai and we see that the cloud covers the mountain. We read this in chapter 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and that you may also and and may also believe you forever and then we get this in verse 16 when the Lord comes on the top of the mountain on Mount Sinai he makes himself known to his people in a cloud verse 16 on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And we know that that is the the precursor to God giving the Ten Commandments. It's that scene, the people are looking and hearing that scene as God thunders his word, his mighty voice 
thundering his authoritative word of the Ten Commandments from the mountain to the people. And the people hear it. They hear the Ten Commandments audibly. They hear God speak. And what is their response? They are absolutely terrified. After God speaks to them, the Ten Commandments, they say to Moses, you talk to God, we're going to go over here, you tell us what God has said. But all that they are taking in, they are referring it to this cloud on the top of the mountain. This cloud is explicitly associated with God's glory. In chapter 24, so if you're following this, you can go to chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. As the people enter into covenant with God, and Moses goes up the mountain to get the tablets with the Ten Commandments. Remember that Moses goes up the mountain and he receives the tabernacle instruction. But the stated purpose for his going up the mountain is to receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments. These are tablets initially that God makes And then God writes his Ten Commandments on them. And as we get this this cloud there on top of the mountain, we read this in 24 verses 15 to 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain. By the way, Moses is going up the mountain to the place that utterly terrifies the people. He is going into what for the people, they don't even want to be around at all. Moses is going into it. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh, or of the Lord, was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel." Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And we find out later that this same thing happened as the covenant is renewed. So you have to fast forward. We know the golden calf incident occurred. Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the tabernacle instructions. He gets the tablets. He comes back down the mountain. And of course, that's when we enter into the golden calf portion beginning in chapter 32. And then chapter 32, all the way up through chapter 34, we find at the end of that, that the covenant is renewed. And so chapter 34, verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God showed Moses his glory. Moses asked to see God's glory So God comes down in the cloud, once again stands with Moses there, passes before him, allows Moses to see his back, just blows our minds. We have no idea what that was like. And God proclaims, as he does it, he proclaims his name. He proclaims his character, his goodness, his gracious and holy nature. And of course, we also have the reference to Moses speaking with God. with God at the private tent of meeting. We've got this little tent outside of the camp where Moses would go and speak with God. And we get that in chapter 33, verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. 
So why am I going through all of this? Why have I gone back and cited these verses, read these verses, and talked about these instances? It is because I'm just trying to show you that this is nothing new. This cloud, God's glory, God's presence, this cloud on Sinai, this cloud leading them through the wilderness, this cloud in which Moses enters, this cloud there outside of the private tent of meeting. This is familiar. We've already seen these elements. So it leads us to ask a question. As we come to this climax, Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38, it leads us to ask the question, what is new? The elements are not new, but what is new here? In what sense is this a climax and not just some kind of summary? In what sense is this breaking in something monumental? And I think there are three things here. First, and most obviously, this is a new space. This is an entirely new space. This is not on top of the mountain. This is not at this private little tent. This is a new space. We've talked a lot about the tabernacle, but it has now just been set up. Remember last week, as we looked at chapter 40, verses 1 to 33, uh, that portion was about the setting up of the tabernacle. Prior to that, we get the construction. The different pieces are made. And then Moses, in chapter 40, verses 1 to 33, he sets up the tabernacle with all the various pieces, Himself involved in overseeing the work, he sets up all the pieces as God had commanded him. It has now been set up. And it is into this particular space that God enters. But he doesn't merely enter it. Uh, The text does not say God comes or God enters or, or God stands outside of. That is not the language that we get as with the private tent of meeting. The language we get is this filling. God fills it. His glory fills the tabernacle. The splendor and weightiness of his divine presence. All that we've seen as we've talked about God's glory. His character who he is and the weight of that, his honorableness, not to dishonor his name. Why? Because he is glory. He is weight to to curse God's name. The opposite of honoring God is to treat him lightly like a feather. But he's not a feather. He is the weightiest that can be imagined. This is the splendor and weight of God. And this is the imagery of his intense presence. He is filling this place. This is a glorious dwelling with his people. And the filling communicates that he is truly there. He's really, really, really there. It is full of God, this new space. Second, for the people, the cloud has always been up there or over there. Think about that for a moment. You know, we've seen a lot with Moses. And as I read through those various passages, you you had a lot of emphasis on Moses. But for the people, 
The cloud of God's presence has always been up there or over there with Moses on Sinai, causing fearful trembling up there with Moses or over there with Moses at the tent of meeting. But now, here, God comes to dwell with his people, with the Israelites themselves in this portable structure. God comes down with his people in their midst. A third feature here that is new, and this is one that really is pretty striking, in contrast to other references to the cloud, here we read that Moses is crowded out. That's that's interesting. It's an important part of these verses. Look at verse 35 again. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, that hasn't been a problem before. Uh, In fact, Moses has been uh, invited into the glory cloud. He has been right there with God at that tent of meeting as God spoke with him. But here we are told that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. So what's going on here? Well, I think there are several things at work. The crowding out of Moses shows the level of filling. There is simply no room for him. It's full of God. There's no space for Moses. There's nowhere where he can sort of position himself or situate himself. This is communicating for the people. God is really, really, fully, truly here. There is simply no room even for the covenant mediator. Also, Moses' inability to enter communicates the intensity of God's presence in his holiness. God comes in blazing holiness. When we think of God's glory, we must think holy. Holy, holy, holy. As Daniel was saying early, three times, holy to the max, perfectly holy, fully holy. And as we see Moses here being crowded out, we are reminded of this holiness. And it brings to mind all that the tabernacle will represent. Separation from God and the need for atonement. The tabernacle is both a symbol of separation And access. But the access comes only by means of the atonement. The entire structure is oriented towards atonement. You walk into the front. And let me get you guys to put that slide up. Just to kind of bring this point home a little more clearly. You walk into the gate. And the first thing you see dominating your sight. Is not the tent where God dwells. It's the altar where substitution takes place. It's the place of sacrifice. It's the place of atonement. It's the place where there is the smell of death. And you go past that, of course, to the basin and the cleansing and enter in. And the blood is brought into the innermost place, the most holy place, and sprinkled on the mercy seat. 
The tabernacle is a structure that cries out the need to be forgiven of sins because God is so, so, so very holy. As we think about the significance of these verses, we recognize that here we have one of the greatest themes of Scripture, and it is the theme of God with us. It takes us from Eden to being driven out of the garden because of sin. What a contrast between the picture of Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day. That God is there so eminently present with his people. And then the verb that is used at the end of Genesis 3. That the man and his wife are driven out. It's not as though a door is opened and the Lord says, you must leave. Time to go. No, no, no. They are driven out of God's presence. And cherubim are placed at the entrance with a flaming sword. No entrance at all. Driven out of God's presence. Human beings disobeying their maker. Doubting his goodness, rebelling against his word, believing a lie from a foreign entity over the kindness and the goodness of the one who has provided everything they've needed perfectly, lavishly, satisfyingly. They are, we were driven out. And this theme of God with us takes us to covenant. And all of God's withness, all of his withness, these appearances to Enoch as God walks with Enoch or Enoch walks with God. Noah walks with God, speaks with God. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they walk with God. They talk with God. They know God. Why? Because God has entered into covenant to undo Eden, to bring his witness to his people. It takes us to God being with his people. As they multiplied in Egypt, we open up the pages of Exodus and we don't read of God doing things overtly, but subtly we see his hand. We see his agency as the people multiply even in the face of persecution, even in the face of murderous regimes of Egyptian pharaohs who want to put them to death. We see God's hand, his witness, as he multiplies his people. Choosing to show his presence as he brings his people out with this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And revealing himself on Sinai. This is where Exodus has been heading all along. God with his people. And we could say this is where the Bible has been headed all along. This is where Genesis and Exodus both 
have been heading all along is to these verses, Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. But we recognize that the end of Exodus, these verses we read today, is just one point early in the story. As magnificent as this is, this is an early chapter in the story of God's purposes. For this theme of God's presence, we must continue on to the stability of the temple located on God's holy mountain on Zion in Jerusalem as we see Solomon building and dedicating the temple. And ultimately, to the Christ who is himself both the tabernacle and the temple. John chapter 1 verse 14, which we have read many times Uh, We are told there, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. We see the glory here filling the tabernacle in Exodus 40, but the glory of God filling the flesh of Christ, the glory of God incarnate, the word taking on to himself a human nature, fully human and fully God, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus in John chapter two, verses 19 to 21, he refers to himself as the temple, his body as the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But then John says this, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus Christ himself, the glory of God incarnate, the name of God, the word of God, the image of God, the son of God. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. And by his work on the cross, he brings God within us. God with us brings God within us. It is Christ who receives the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and he pours the Holy Spirit out on the church. God with us, and God now by the Holy Spirit within us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So this little point here in Exodus 40, as, as glorious as it is, as magnificent and majestic and awe-inspiring as it is, it is a point early on in the story. But even what I just said is not the end of the story. This sin-stained pilgrimage through this earthly life, no, we wait for something greater. We wait for the new heaven and the new earth. We wait for what John describes in Revelation 21 and 22. Remember, as Paul describes it to the Thessalonians, when Christ returns, we will forever be with the Lord. 
So in all of our eschatological discussions and debates, we must always remember that that is the focus of all eschatology. We will be with Christ, period. That is the great point. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle. That is the word there. And so I'm going to just put the word tabernacle in there. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then we read in chapter 22, the very last chapter of the whole Bible, verses 4 to 5, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now that's the last chapter of the story. That's where this is headed. And it traces through this pivotal moment in the history of God's workings and dealings with his people as we come to the end of Exodus But it is not the climax. It is merely a pointer. So let me just ask all of us, what does this reference to God filling the tabernacle do for us? How should we move away from these verses? And I think there's just a simple answer for us, and it is this. It leaves us with grateful longing. Grateful longing. Longing. He has come. He dwells within us. And one day, He will be with us forever. We will be in His presence as God tabernacles with His people in the new heaven and the new earth. We are a people of grateful longing. Well, the New Testament is full of waiting language. In fact, uh, those commands to endure and to persevere, to hold fast to our faith and so forth, they're always couched within this language of waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for the consummation of all things through Christ, which will result ultimately in the new heaven and the new earth where we will forever be with God. And I would submit to you, this really is the substance of what we find in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. When God comes to Moses, he appears to Moses, he tells him to take off his sandals. He's standing on holy ground and he begins to speak to Moses. Moses asks the very logical question, so let me get this straight. I'm going to go to the people. When I go to the people, who am I going to say sent me? Who are you and and how do I convey that to the people? And we know what the answer is that the Lord gives Moses. He says, I am who I am. And then, of course, we get the name Yahweh, which essentially means he is. And it is easy for us to read that language and sort of go into philosophy land. Right, It is easy for us to just think about the ontological point of that. What is, it? What is that sense of being? And it blows our minds. And of course, that's part of it. 
Part of it is just simply recognizing God's, uh, his existence. He is. Nothing else is like God is. Everything else derives its isness from him. He simply is self-sufficient, needing nothing or no one. And those truths are glorious. And of course, we must emphasize those, but there's more to it than that. When God reveals himself as I am, he is also saying, I am with, I am present. It is covenantal language. It is language that binds God's present being to the real lives of his people. And so, in light of these great truths about God's presence, we are a people of grateful longing, looking forward to being with the Lord. Do you look forward to being with the Lord? Are you so enamored with the things of this life that really uh, there's just a a fear of death? Because then this and that and this and that will stop. This and that and this and that will will end. Those pleasures of this life. Just so enamored with this. God gives us himself. And that is the greatest treasure. So first, we have the filling. Then we come. To the following, verses 36 to 38. Let's look there. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now that the tabernacle has been constructed and erected, it becomes the focal point of Israel. Why? Well, because that's where God lives. God lives in this place. Uh, The tabernacle is God's house. And that's the reason why when we come to the tabernacle, we talk about rooms and we talk about furniture. That's what we talk about when we talk about our own houses, rooms and furniture. And in the same way, this tent, this dwelling place of the Lord has rooms and it has furniture. It is moving out from the interior throne room. And that is how we are meant to conceive of the holy of holies or the most holy place with this pure gold and this mercy seat between the cherubim. This is God's house. This is the king's throne room. But that is where we need to take note that the tabernacle itself is not the focal point. It is God's presence. It is this glory cloud. That is the reference point. That is the focus of Israel. The tabernacle gets all of its significance because it is God's house. Apart from that, it's nothing more than an elaborate, expensive tent with a courtyard and some strategically placed objects. That's all it would be. 
And by the way, that reminds us of those commands about the Sabbath. When God gave the instructions to Moses, he ended those instructions with this Sabbath reference. And then later, uh, as the people are to begin construction, he starts with the Sabbath. Why is that? Because the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant that God has entered into with the Israelites. In other words, to have the tabernacle without being bound to God in obedience to his covenant is to make the tabernacle utterly worthless. And that is one of the reasons why the prophets will speak about a God not caring about their sacrifices. That God even hates their sacrifices. The tabernacle would be nothing without the relationship, without God dwelling there, without the people obeying their God. What makes the tabernacle special or holy is the presence of Yahweh. The people follow the Lord. They follow him. So when he moves from his house, the people know that it is their time to go. Okay, the cloud's moving. It is time to go. So they pack up the tabernacle. However they did that, the Levites took care of that. And in fact, we even get descriptions of that as they, as they are folding the, those coverings over. They fold them over the ark so they, they can't see the ark. And they have particular ways that they carry. We remember the poles that go in the sides of the ark. It's meant to be taken down and put back up. Taken down and put back up. And we get a description of this in Numbers Chapter 9, verses 15 to 23. And because this description is so elaborate and, and, and even repetitious, it really drives home the point. I want to take some time just to read it to you. So this is Numbers 9, 15 to 23. And this really serves as the explanation for these verses at the end of Exodus. So here it is. Numbers 9, verses 15 to 23. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle with the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. God did not let up. God did not leave. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. It's this glowing structure. It's incredible. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. Once again, the emphasis on God commanding his people. He is Lord over his people. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Let me just pause there for a moment. Of course there would be people who would have their own plans. There would be people who were wired like entrepreneurs or generals or whatever else. And they are scheming and thinking and charging out ahead and that's a wonderful thing. But you do not get out ahead of the glory cloud. Period. So no matter how long it stays, they stay. He goes on. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. 
And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. Let me just pause there. There are some people who are uh, impatient by nature. And so the, the long stints of God's glory cloud being there, particularly difficult. Some people absolutely hate change. And they just like to get comfortable in the seat. They like to get all the things sorted around them. And they want to stay there forever. Like that is the happy lane. And so to both of those people, they must follow the Lord. If the Lord stays for a short time, they stay for a short time. If the Lord stays for a long time, they stay for a long time. They are entirely subservient to the movement of Yahweh, their God. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Do you hear that repetition? Do you see how important that is to God? They follow him. Packed into this language of journeying here is the promise of Canaan. We get uh, journeying being mentioned at the very beginning of the passage and at the very end or the very beginning of this section. So the beginning of verse 36, throughout all their journeys. And then it comes back at the end, throughout all their journeys. This language anticipates the journey to Canaan. God, or the arrival rather, at Canaan. God had promised the patriarchs that their descendants would have that land. It is the promised land. And going all the way back once again to the burning bush, we read the Lord saying this to Moses in chapter 3, verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And you may think, you know, all those times that we have read, going through Genesis and Exodus, all those ites. We read all those ites. Uh, There's one word written over all, well, there's a few words actually. uh, But one of the words written over all of those ites is the word faithful. The point is that in the details, the the land of these specific people, there's also a word judgment there as we think about what God is doing with regard to those people. But his faithfulness, not to make a general promise, some sort of ephemeral, vaporous promise, but a specific, concrete promise. I'm going to give you that land that those people, these ites and those ites and those ites currently live on. That is your land, Abraham. Then Isaac, that is your land, Isaac. That is your land, Jacob. And then at the end of Genesis, we get Joseph saying, when God does it, because he's going to do it, of course, it's already, it's, it's a done deal. When God does it, I want you to take my body out of Egypt. It is a certainty 
Because God's promises are certain because he is always faithful. He cannot deny himself. He never lies or fails to keep his promises. As we finish up this morning, as we finish Exodus, a couple of parting implications for us. First, and referring to these last few verses, this allusion to the promised land tells us that God's salvation and presence comes with an inheritance. We are saved to something. And the way that is described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that we have been saved, we've been born again to a hope, and ultimately the fruition of that hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and that never fades away. You know, all the things you're pursuing in your life right now, they are perishable. They are fading. And they will be defiled and fade away. Not a single thing that your heart is clinging to, not a single thing that your time is commanded and governed by is gonna last apart from the Lord. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. That's why Jesus says, look, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This stuff gets taken. It gets ruined. It fades away. This allusion to the promised land tells us that God saves us for an inheritance. Grateful longing. The second parting implication is that God assures his people of his presence. God does not merely give his people, listen to this closely, God does not merely give his people his presence. God assures his people of his presence. Where do we see that in these verses? Well, look at verse 38. It's these wonderful little words here in the sight <coughs> in the sight of all the house of Israel. Before their faces, before their eyes, every night when the sun would go down, glowing, glowing with fire, the cloud by day and the fire by night, always, as we read in Numbers, always there, verse 38, in the sight of the people. If for a moment you begin to doubt God's presence, all they had to do was turn their head and look at this glowing, cloud-filled place. God assures his people. What about for us? He does this through his indwelling spirit as the spirit uses the means of grace. God does not want us to be waffling about. God wants us to be assured in Christ. He wants us to hold fast our confession of faith without wavering. He wants us to approach boldly to the throne of grace. He wants us to know, to know. He wants us to have this assurance. And he does this by the Spirit crying out within us, Abba, Father, and the Spirit using the means of grace. 
Bible, prayer, and fellowship with God's people, those are always present. Those things are always fundamental. You can never get away from those fundamentals. So maybe you're just out there sort of trying to find something a little extra exciting, a, 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 little, bit, a little bit new, a little bit fresh. It's always these three. Bible, prayer, and being with God's people. These are the means that God uses to assure our hearts that we are in the faith. As we live in the midst of these things, as we breathe in these things, we are seeing the glory of the Lord as he dwells with us, his people. It is like looking at that glowing tabernacle. Or before, as they looked at Moses' glowing face. Finally, I think it is also interesting that here, at the end of Exodus, in verses 34 to 38, we get a kind of summary of the Christian life. As we look at this idea of filling and this idea of following, we see these two concepts of abiding and obeying. You could summarize the entire Christian life in this way, to abide with God and to heed his voice. To be with him and to listen to him. To be with God and to follow God wherever he leads. And in that sense, the end of Exodus is like a little paradigm for for all of our living. As little tabernacles of God, as little temples of God. Abiding with God in his presence. Taking in his word, talking to him about his word. And obeying his voice. Doing what he says. You know, this is a climactic passage, but I want you to see something, not to ruin the the climax there, but as we get this final verse here, I just want you to see the beginning of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, dot, dot, So there is a sense in which this is really climactic. And then there's a sense in which we really are left just sort of moving on to the next thing. The story continues. And over the next few months, as we go into all these different places within God's word, we'll see all the ways that God has continued and is continuing that story. And he, in his kindness, has made each of us a part of it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Exodus and all of these verses that we have read and studied and applied to our hearts and discussed in group. Lord, what a treasure is this book. We're just so thankful, Lord, for it and for your providence in uh, allowing us, enabling us to be able to spend this time in it. Lord, would it not be in vain and would the fruit of it be seen in all of our lives, in the lives of our kids, Lord, as they look back on their lives, no matter how old they are now, but as they look back on their lives, that they would be able to look back and see the ways that you used Exodus in their lives for these two years. God, we thank you for your word and how faithful you are to work in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you are so present to your people And you are within us, and one day we will be with you in an unadulterated, uninterrupted, unstained 
perfect way. We praise you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.